Thank you for tuning into the Apostolic Pentecostal Church podcast. You are currently listening to one of our iGrow series lessons. If you're in the Bloomington, Illinois area and want to sit in person, feel free to join us Wednesday nights at 7 p.m. for Bible study and Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. for worship in the Word. Can't make it in person? No big deal. Find us on YouTube, Facebook, or Instagram and search Apostolic Pentecostal Church. Either way, we'd love to fellowship and worship with you. We hope to see you. So I want to emphasize tonight that Babylon is more than a geographical location. You know, in uh, Philip, I'm throwing you a curveball. I'll tell you when we get to where we throw at. But um, when we get into the book of Revelation, what is it they talk about? The what of Babylon? The Yes, and the mystery of Babylon. Now, that's after Babylon's fallen, okay? So, Babylon is a philosophy, and we'll see that tonight. It's a way of thinking. In his book entitled Intoxicated with Babylon, author Steve Gallagher, who's ever heard of that book? Yeah, Pastor Anthony Mangan, when we were in Ellick, had the whole church get that book because he wanted us to understand and enlighten us. Uh, in this book, Steve Gallagher defines Babylon as the power of Satan at work in men's hearts. The power of Satan at work in men's hearts. That's what Babylon is. So that's something to think about, isn't it? Consider the contrast of the kingdom of God ruling and reigning in you or the power of Satan at work in your heart. Which one do you think is going to turn out well in the long run? A wise man considers his end. So we have a choice whose system we go with. We can choose who we will serve, but we cannot rule ourselves. That's the big lie. That's the big lie. That we, we can... Um, that is a notion. It's a lie from hell. Remember the words of Joshua when he was about to enter the promised land, Joshua 24, 15. And if it seem evil unto you to serve the Lord, choose you this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your father, that which your father served that were on the other side of the flood, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So we have a choice. We can go after the kingdom of God. Doesn't it say to hunger and thirst after righteousness to go after it? We can go after the kingdom of God and all the many benefits that come with it. Psalm 103, the many benefits of the Lord. Or we can go after the delusion, and it is a delusion, that we can be our own king and make our own choices. It's not. Once we go that route, Satan's at work in our hearts. This is how Satan got to Adam and Eve. He didn't say, oh, let me uh, defile you, let me deceive you, let me completely mess you up. His big lie was, you can be your own God. You can be like God. The Babylonian mentality started all the way back in the Garden of Eden when Satan convinced Eve that mixed knowledge of good and evil would put her on par with God. We are about to go into chapter 5, but just a little review. Do you remember the history of Babylon 
that was covered on the first night, I think, that we got together, what the first lesson, the Tower of Babylon and the mentality the people had. Systematic rebellion. Up to that time, it had just been individuals or a couple of people, but now a system of rebellion, making a name for themselves, so pride, self-sufficiency, presented as an alternative to the standards, values, and perspective of God's kingdom. And it was headed up by the first king. Do you remember his name? I know you do. Nimrod, who was in rebellion against God. He was a type of the Antichrist. So that's still at work in the world today, that philosophy, that system, that rebellion. And then there's another character in the Bible that was called out of the Ur of Chaldees. He's very precious to us, the father of the faithful. That's Abraham. And God revealed himself and called him out of that system and made a covenant with him and then gave him the land. So God called Abraham out of this place, out of this philosophy, and made an everlasting covenant with him. In Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, from thy kindred, from thy father's house, unto a land that I will show thee, and I will make thee a great nation. What's that nation? Israel, the nation of Israel. I will bless thee and make thy name great. Now what's the big lie? That the Tower of Babel will make a name for ourselves. You know, and it was all shut down. Did, who pulled that down? God. He pulled it down and he scattered it. It wasn't going to happen. But look, is Abraham's name great? You better believe it is. Y'all couldn't even think of Nimrod. <laughs> His name's not very great. So I'll make your name great and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless them that bless thee, curse him that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So Abraham, you do something, you do this right, you make a covenant, I'll make your name great, and you're going to be a blessing. It, to everybody, you're going to be a blessing. That's a lot different than being self-centered, isn't it? That's being outward. So the nation of Judah, remember the tribe, Israel split. We have Israel and then uh, the tribe, was it two and a half tribes for Judah? Um, yeah. Yeah. So Judah, Judah gets carried off into Babylon, Babylonian captivity. That's where we're at in the book of Daniel. So the nation of Judah had been, had not been faithful like their forefather Abraham, and they had been taken captive. Their nation and their temple had been destroyed. They did not hold on to the truth. They did not keep the faith. But we do see a few shining examples of those who have purposed in their hearts. How did, how did Daniel do it? On purpose. Lots of purpose. Purposed in their hearts that they will have no other God before the one true living God. They are the heroes of the book of Daniel. What are their names? Do you all remember their names? You'll get five points if you remember their name. We did that tonight. We were, I was trying to get the kids to start cleaning up after themselves a little bit better. So, boy, Layla was right on it. Layla, you have five points. If you, if, you met, if you leave an area messed up, you lose one point. She was on it. And I said, Molly, you're about to lose some points. You have 30 seconds to get it right. She said, 
I don't need any points. <laughs> so I told Bruce and I were talking about it. That's not what motivates her, but I got her number. I'll just say, you don't get ice cream tomorrow. <laughs> and she'll clean her area a little bit better. Okay, so their names are... Uh, their, their um, names that are changed are what? Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but their real names are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Remember, he taught a wonderful lesson on the name of God. Okay, so we're going to get into lesson five. What are you doing? You jumped ahead of me. So tonight, we will see the fall of the great kingdom of Babylon, the gold head, but we're not going to see the fall, we're not going to see the mentality of Babylon leave this earth. You see what I'm saying? We're not going to see that. The greatest, Babylon was the greatest worldwide kingdom of its time. And we want to look at tonight's lesson. We want to consider the factors that led to the fall. Why did it fall? Because it has some lessons for our life that we can apply to ours. So Babylon, the spirit of Babylon, that's the attitude, the mentality. What God thought about it. What did he think about it at Babel? He wiped it out, didn't he? Our response to have this going on in the earth, this mentality. And it needs to be really to keep ourselves from being indoctrinated and to protect ourselves from it. And once you start seeing it, you see it. I mean, and we'll, you'll, I think you'll get a better glimpse of it tonight. Then the precarious position, that's going to be the position of those that mock God. He holds them in this hand. You know, he can just snuff them out just so quickly. We're going to look at that. And then the importance of this life for the believer, what we can do to make things better, to be a blessing. So, the spirit of Babylon, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It's all about this life. It's all about pleasure. It's nothing about the resurrection, nothing about the judgment. So let's, uh, who wants to read for me? Uh, Brother David said he would. Okay, take off, Brother David. No, we're going to read, um, oh my, 1 through 47. <laughs> no, <laughs> 1 through 4, please. 3 and 4. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken. No, 1, one through 4. Oh, I'm one. sorry. 1 through 4. Mm hmm. Belshazzar. King made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine for the thousand. Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives, and his concubines might drink the river. So they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God which was at Jerusalem, and the king and his princes. His wives and his concubines drank in them. Okay, just one second, Brother David. Do you see a problem? Do you, I see a problem. Okay, please read the next one. They drank wine and praised gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. What are they lacking? Good sense. Good sense. Do you think they're out of cups? Do you think they needed cups to drink out of? 
No, I don't. They're lacking the fear of God. He can strike them dead in a minute. They're lacking the knowledge of God. Not because it's not been there for them. They've just not pursued it. And they're lacking understanding. What are those in Proverbs? What are they? The fear of God, the knowledge of God, understanding. That's the beginning of what? Wisdom. Wisdom. The wisdom that comes from above that we talked about. Uh, Lacey, last week four other people came in after you took it. So I don't know if that will happen tonight or not. So this chapter starts with the new king, King Belshazzar. And it's real easy to say Belteshazzar if, when you've been doing this. I, find, I found that I've wanted to do that because it's so similar. He was believed to have been Nebuchadnezzar's grandson, spoken of as his son in this passage. And that may or may not be true, but they do speak of him as his son. And unfortunately, as we see from the scripture reading, the humility and faith that King Nebuchadnezzar had come into was not carried on by Belshazzar. Do you remember where he was humbled and made and given the heart of an animal and lived seven years like an animal? And then he writes a letter to the whole kingdom saying how wonderful the Most High God is and just praising him. It, it seems like a conversion. It really does, you know, what he's doing. So where, where is this? Where's the humility that Nebuchadnezzar came into? We don't see it, do we? So the saying that God only has sons, not grandsons, is true indeed. You can't pass it on to the next generation. You can teach them. But they have to grab a hold of it for, for themselves. So the saying, um, now there are three things that stand out in this passage concerning the attitude that they had. One was life was a party. They had it all. Nobles, wives, concubines, wine. Historians tell us that as they partied, that, and that these parties were essentially I hate to even say it, is essentially drunken sexual orgies. Live for today was the motto of Babylon. Live for pleasure. It was hedonism. Who knows what hedonism is? Hedonism, the pursuit of pleasure and sensual self-indulgence. That's what's going on here. They sought pleasure as the ultimate goal and way of life. Do you see that around you in, in America? Do you see the pursuit of pleasure? The scene is reminiscent of what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 32. He said, if the dead are not raised, if, they're not, if there's not a resurrection, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. If it's just about this life, then I could see it happening. But is it just about this life? No, it's not. In other words, if there is no God, if there is no afterlife, if there is no resurrection or judgment to come, then live it up. Party, party, party. Live for today only for tomorrow we die. That was Belshazzar's attitude. It is also the attitude of countless others today. It would make perfect sense if there was no God. I can understand it. Paul can understand it. But it makes no sense if there is a God. And there is a life and judgment after death. No wisdom, no understanding, no fear of the Lord. 
So life was a party, and also they worshipped created things. What did they do when they lifted those vessels up? They praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and wood and stone. Why did they do that? They were mocking God. Blasphemous. Mocking God. There was self-confident smugness. Smugness, to be smug is having or showing excessive pride in oneself or one's achievements. That's the Tower of Babel all again. Look, we're making our own way to heaven. We're putting this slime pitched up on it so the wrath of God can never come against us again. It's just defying God. It's just in the face of God, but not knowing their precarious position that he could wipe them out, and they should know. So the history and setting of this passage is very interesting. While this party's going on, what's happening on the outside? The Medo-Persian army is all around them. There's a siege going on. But they're laughing at the siege. Why are they laughing at the siege? They thought their walls were impenetrable. Nebuchadnezzar had made Babylon into the world's mightiest fortress. The outer wall was so thick that no battering ram or instruments of warfare were able to knock it down. The presence of a second inner wall made any attempts to scale the wall suicidal. What would have happened if they had gotten over the first wall? They could have shot them. They could have stood on the second one. They would have been caught between the two walls. The walls of Babylon had been built over the Euphrates River. Thus that river flowed through the city at all times. Had all the water they needed. And in anticipation of a blockade by the media of Persia, the Babylonians supplied the city with enough food to maintain their population for guess how many years? 20 years. They laughed at the siege. Eat, drink, and be merry. They were having a good time. They whined and dined as the enemy circled. So that was the spirit of Babylon. Live for pleasure, live for today, worship the gods of silver and gold while mocking the true God. Live in a smug self-confidence thinking that nothing can happen to you. Well, that being the case, let's look at what the true God thought about that attitude. And to do that, let's go to Isaiah 47. And uh, in Isaiah 47, 9 through 11, who wants to read that? Avery, you want to read it for us? Okay, verse 9. But these two things shall come to thee in a moment in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon thee in their perfection for the multitude of thy sorceries and for the great abundance of thine enchantments. For thou hast trusted in thy wickedness, thou hast said, None seeth me. Thy wisdom and thy knowledge, it hath perverted thee, and thou hast said in thy heart, I am, and none else beside me. Therefore shall evil come upon thee. Thou shalt not know from whence it riseth, and mischief shall fall upon thee, and thou shalt not be able to put it off, and desolation shall come upon thee suddenly, which thou shalt not know. So we don't have to be in the dark at all about what God thought of the Babylonian spirit. For it had been recorded for us in Isaiah's prophecy and many other places in Proverbs, just about living wisely before God. So we see it all around us. This is going on. We see it in Revelation 3 in the Laodicean church. 
They don't know their true state. Jesus is pictured outside the church while those inside revel in their wealth saying, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. Jesus isn't in the church. And knowest not that thou art wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. So the worship of the gods of gold and silver isn't just a thing of the past. Is not Ichabod, the glory has departed, written all over the wealthy, self-sufficient Western churches of our modern Laodicean age? God's not in it. It's all about my best life now. It's sad. It's so sad. But note what this prophecy from Isaiah says concerning Babylon. Disaster will come upon you and you will not know how to conjure it away. It also says it will come on a single day. Well, in the book of Daniel, we have reached that day. It is the day of judgment upon the world kingdom. Now let's take a look at God's response. We need a reader for uh, verses 5 through 9. I'll read it. Wait, he, okay, let him because okay. he wanted to before. Okay, you'll be next. Okay, go ahead, baby. And the Bruce. same power came forth fingers of, of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him so that his joints, the joints of his loins were loosed his knees smote one against another. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers and the Chaldeans and the soothsayers. And the king spake and said to the wise men of Babylon, Whosoever shall read this writing and show me the interpretation thereof shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck and shall be the third ruler of the kingdom. Then, it came, uh, then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing, nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. Then was King Belshazzar greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed in him, and his lords were astonished. So a hand comes and writes on the wall. Even as he and his guests wined and dined, the Medo-Persian Empire sat outside the Babylonian walls, but the king didn't care. He was confident that they had done everything necessary to ensure their victory. Nothing could spoil this party. When I lived in, in the 60s, I think it was 68 when Camille hit, uh, along Highway 90, the beach, you know, that was, I think, a Category 4, was it, Hurricane? Five. That that was an unbelievably strong hurricane. I think the uh, they tracked the actual winds over 200 miles an hour, and uh, the surge that came up just destroyed so many homes on the beach. But there was a man that had built um, a mansion on the beach, and he had hurricane proofed it, and he had a hurricane party. That house wasn't there anymore. They partied while the storm went on. Sad, isn't it? They're partying while the enemy circles. So we've all heard this saying, the writing is on the wall. Has anybody not heard that? This is where it originates, right here. It signifies some impending doom. Maybe it could also be where the term 
crashing the party originated. That was, that was my husband's idea. <laughs> Someone might say, I haven't lost my job yet, but the writing is on the wall. Well, that same is spoken of nations. The writing can be on the wall for nations as we see here. Something inevitable is about to happen to Babylon, something that no one can stop for it comes from the hand of God. The king didn't find this hand at all funny. In fact, it was much more sobering than coffee. That's from Bruce T. <laughs> he was so, I loved it. I love his jokes. He was so frightened that his knees even knocked together. Have you ever had such a shock or a fright that your body actually shook? Have you, anybody here? I have. I have, and it was in a prayer meeting, and the power of God came in so strong that I actually shook. It was, it was scary. You know, John fell as dead. You know, it was such a strong power. If so, you have a small glimpse into the king's experience right about now. What the might of the Medo-Persian Empire hadn't been able to do, God had now performed through the use of a hand, a wall, and four little words. While the king couldn't understand the meaning of the words, he inwardly knew that there was, there was something that was not good. The writing is on the wall for any nation that revels in the same Babylonian spirit that we see here, defying and mocking God using holy vessels and praising other gods. The writing's on the wall for them. It is interesting to note that historians have studied the rise and fall of nations. They tell us that nations and empires have births and deaths, just like people do. In fact, the following cycle has been discovered, and there's five things that precede the death of a nation. Who wants to read those? Would you like to read it, Nathan? So the rapid increase in divorce and the undermining of the sanctity of the home the spiraling rise of taxes and extravagant spending, the mounting craze for pleasure and the brutalization of sports, the building of gigantic armaments and the failure to realize that the real enemy lay within the walls with the moral decay of the people, and the decay of religion and the fading of faith into a mere form, leaving the people without guidance. Can you see it? Can you see the writing on the wall for a nation that this happens to? So these five points, again, are eerily reminiscent of the age in which we live. In connection to this, consider the following quote from Abraham Lincoln concerning the USA. If this nation is to be destroyed, it will be from within, not from without. Do we see that happening? Yes, we do. So sobering words and thoughts in the current economic, social, and political climate. And unfortunately, we see the same type of spirit in the West today as being expressed here in Babylon 2,500 years ago. There is a mocking of the true God. There is a self-centered me spirit that exalts in pleasure and in parties, ignoring the real situations, the real serious situations that are at our doors. We also could compare it with the days of Noah. They partied, they ate, drank, married, gave each other, you know, in marriage, Noah building this boat. 
telling them a flood's going to come, preaching the truth. They ignored it until the day that they entered the ark. Who shut that door? God shut that door. Seven days later, it started raining. So now this king should have known better. Say, he should have known better. He's different from Nebuchadnezzar. God's going to be more long-suffering with Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's going to speak more kindly to Nebuchadnezzar than we're going to see Belshazzar. He's going to tell Belshazzar, you should have known. You should have known. So he should have known about the Most High God. Unfortunately, Belshazzar had rejected the light that he had received. Does it scare you when you see somebody rejecting the light? When they've got awesome parents and they're just in the face of God when things are going on? Very precarious position. God holds them in there. It can go in a moment. Proverbs 21.1 says, A man who remains stiff-necked after many rebukes will suddenly be destroyed without remedy. Now, can we help it? If God judges us, is there anybody that can rescue us from that? No. Remember the fire? Nobody can rescue you from the fire. But yes, there is one. But not, not when it's his judgment. So he obviously learned nothing from the stories of King Nebuchadnezzar. And again turns to his enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Isn't that just like us sometimes? We have the truth, we've got the word, and we get a problem, and we, we want to know, you know, we go around, what do you think about this? What should I do about this? Where are we supposed to go? The word of God. And as Isaiah's prophecy quoted before, when disaster struck, they would not be able to conjure it away. God had seen and heard enough. The light given to the Babylonians had not only been rejected, but was now being used to mock the very God who gave them life. The humility, and we don't see the same humility, or we don't see any humility in Belshazzar that King Nebuchadnezzar had come into. So Daniel 5, 10 through 16. Who wants to read for me? Ebony, you want to read? Okay. Now the queen, by reason of the word of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house, and the queen spake and said, O king, live forever. Let not thy, thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. There is a man in thy kingdom, in, the, in, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the day of thy father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, was found in him. Whom the king, Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, the king, I say thy father, made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. For as much as the excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding and interpreting of dreams and chewing of the hard sentences and dissolving of doubts were found in the same Daniel, whom the king named Balthasar. Now let Daniel be called, and he shewed the interpretations. Then was Daniel brought into, in before the king, and spake and said unto Daniel, Art thou that Daniel, which are the children of the captivity of Judah, whom the king my father brought out of Judah? I can take it. 
You did a great job. I have even heard of thee, that the spirit of the gods is in thee, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in thee. Why had he never sought him? I've heard of you. I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, that light, understanding, excellent wisdom. He'd never sought it out. And now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me that they should read this writing and make known unto me the interpretation thereof, but they could not show the interpretation of the thing. And I have heard of thee that thou can make interpretations and dissolve doubts. Now if thou canst read the writing and make known to me the interpretation thereof, thou shalt be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about thy neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. So it's interesting that people like the king could see the writing is on the wall and that it made them fearful, but they did not know what it meant or what to do about it. We're in that situation today. People can see the writings on the wall. They can see one thing after another. The pandemic, you know, the government, everything's shaking. They can see it, but they don't know what to do about it. The world needs more Daniels. God is my judge, living a life that reflects that. That God is my judge. You think Daniel, God is my judge, is going to take a holy vessel of God and mock God and praise the gods of gold, silver, bronze, wood, and stone? No way. Bible-believing Christians should be that people. The world needs Daniels who can not only see the writing on the wall, but can also interpret the signs for the people. Jesus has the answers, and we're his ambassadors. We've got to be plugged in. We've got to. You just told me today, like three people, major problems, major problems coming to you. It is interesting that in the time of crisis, people start looking for answers. From our passage, it seems that Daniel hadn't been consulted for some time, not in the reign of this king at least, and yet when real trouble comes into town, he is sought for again. It seems in the West at least that we have hit that part of the cycle where our abundance has led to selfishness, our selfishness has led to apathy towards spiritual matters. Is God now shaking things up? Is God doing this? Each new day seems to bring forth more world crises. Is he allowing this to shake the people out of their complacency? Consider your own relationship with the Lord. Have you been pulled into the Babylonian spirit that pervades the Western world? Let's just live for today. Let's just live for today. Let's just go to lunch. Let's just go do this. And then consider Daniel refused that table, refused that lifestyle. A man set apart who could represent the Almighty and speak into the situation. Daniel 5, 17 through 21. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let thy gifts be to thyself and give thy rewards to another. Was he living for this world? No, he wasn't. 
Yet I will read the writing unto the king and make known to him the interpretation. O thou king. Now notice the difference. Such a contrast. He loved Nebuchadnezzar. He spoke gently to him. O thou king, the most high God, Nebuchadnezzar, thy father, God gave Nebuchadnezzar thy father a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. And for the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he slew, and whom he would, he kept alive, and whom he would, he set up, and whom he would, he put down. He totalitarian, world-dominant kingdom. But when his heart was lifted up, because who reigns in the kingdom of men? God. We've seen that. We've seen that. We saw it in chapter 1. Uh, God gave Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, into uh, Nebuchadnezzar's hand. And we, sit, we uh, saw that with um, Nebuchadnezzar when um, he made him like an animal. And we're going to see that tonight, that God is going to allow the Medo-Persian kingdom to come in. God rules in the kingdom of men, even though it appeared that Nebuchadnezzar ruled. He killed anybody he wanted to. He set up anybody he wanted to. He did all this. And then who humbled him? When he walked through his palace after being warned and said, this is great Babylon that I have built. Right then, right then, seven years, humbled, ate like an animal. But when his heart was lifted up and his um, mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they... And they took his glory from him. Can you imagine them running that king, that crazy, insane king out of the palace? Wow. That's pretty wild, isn't it? And he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beast, and his dwelling was with the wild asses. They fed him with grass. They fed him with grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till he knew. Say, till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men. That's a pretty harsh lesson, isn't it? And that he appointed over it whomsoever he will. What two things did God want him to know? God ruled in the kingdom of men, and he appointed it over it whomsoever he will. As Daniel confronts King Belshazzar, he begins with a slightly unusual approach. He starts with a history lesson. So he's going over all of this and saying, you should have known better. You should have known better. You should have known better. How many in this room should know better? I've got the whole Bible. I live in America. You know? So Daniel 5, 22 and 23. And thou, his son, O Belshazzar, has not humbled thine heart Though thou knewest all this, but hast lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee, and thou and thy lords, thy wives, thy concubines, have drunk wine in them, and thou hast praised the gods of silver, gold, brass, iron, wood, stone, which see not, nor hear, nor know, and the God in whose hand thy breath is, the God in whose hand thy breath is and whose are all thy ways hast thou not glorified. The precarious position of the unbeliever. 
When Daniel was asked to interpret King Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the great tree chopped down, he did so almost with a sadness that the interpretation applied to King Nebuchadnezzar and not to his enemies. There seemed to be a fondness there. Well, things are quite different for the king, for this king, and Daniel is straight to the point. You knew it. You knew better. You knew how God uh, humbled your grandfather. You had been given great revelation and light from God, and you rejected it. You mocked the true God and worshipped idols. And all of that would apply to us. All of that would apply to our nation. We know better. We know better. How many history lessons do we need? There's a key psalm that goes along with this lesson. It's Asaph. Y'all know where I'm going? In Psalm 73. Asaph is deeply troubled about two things. One, the prosperity of the godless. He sees people that are godless without the fear of God prospering. And then he looks around and he sees about the pain that the godly, those that fear the Lord, the pain that they're in. And then as you go on down the psalm and you get to verse 17, Asaph is no longer troubled. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I their end. Judgment day is coming. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors as a dream when one awaketh. So, O Lord, when thou awakest, thou shalt despise their image. 25. Whom have I in heaven but thee? I love that. Whom have I in heaven but thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside thee. What a wonderful, godly mentality and way of thinking. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. A little bit different than Belshazzar's attitude, wouldn't you say? An understanding of his end. So back to Daniel. 5.24 Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and the writing was written. Bruce was wishing there was some way we could make a hand appear and write. <laughs> we have some interesting discussions when we're talking about our lesson. And this is the writing that was written. Many, many tikal yibarsin. It's a strange little inscription. Many means numbered or mina, a unit of money. Tikal means weighed or shekel, a unit of money. Parson means divided or Persia or half shekel. But when Daniel's going to interpret it, he's going to interpret it in the verb forms. That's how he's going to do it. They knew how to read it, but they didn't know what it meant. This is the interpretation of the thing. Many, God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Sovereign God rules in the kingdom of men. It's over. It's finished. It's numbered. 
tickle, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Got put on the scales, Jessica, and there it didn't work out well. So we see Babylon, that gold kingdom, is going to fall. It's going to change. And Medo-Persia, which represents the silver, is coming in. We're told about those four, uh, four world kingdoms. And the stone, which represents the kingdom of God, is going to come in and blast it. And the, the iron and clay and the iron and the uh, bronze and the silver and the gold are all going to what? Like the chaff. Remember the lesson? Which the, and be no more. So as Daniel gives the true interpretation of the writing on the wall, you can only imagine the fear rising within the king. Or maybe not. Because he just doesn't seem to get it, does he? Numbered, numbered, weighed and divided. Your number is up, Belshazzar. You have been weighed and found to be a spiritual featherweight. Your life and your kingdom is over. You have been found wanting. There's no appeal. There's no higher court to take it to. It's his judgment day. Important words for all of us. God not only numbers our days, but he weighs our lives. And he not only weighs our lives, but he records and judges our deeds. Everything that comes out of our mouth is their fear and reverence of God. We know it. We know the scripture. The fact is that all of us will have to hop on the heavenly scales one day. I don't like getting on scales, do you guys? <laughs> the Bible says that it is appointed unto all men to die once and then face the judgment. 1 John 2.28 And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be what? confident and unashamed before him at his coming. Wow. Daniel 5.29 Then commanded Belshazzar and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. Why not rip your king's garment and fall on your knees and beg for mercy? That was just not even, oh, I told you this was going to happen in my kingdom. Just continuing with his kingdom duties. It's over, Belshazzar. In that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. And Darius, the Median, took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. Excuse me. Third in the kingdom. For an entire hour. Isn't that just like what this world offers? Isn't it? For an hour. For it's probably like that to the Lord because of the way he numbers time. Back to Isaiah chapter 47. And thou sayest, I shall be a lady forever, so that thou didst not lay these things to thy heart. We need to lay these things to our heart. Neither did remember the latter end of it. We can be unashamed at his appearing if we'll lay it to heart. Therefore hear now this, thou that are given to pleasures that dwellest carelessly, that sayest in thy heart, I am and none else beside me. Is that smug? 
I shall not sit as a widow, neither shall I know the loss of children. But these two things shall come to thee in a moment, in one day, the loss of children and widowhood. They shall come upon thee in their perfection for the multitude of thy sorceries and for the great abundance of thine enchantments. So in summary, the precarious position of the unbeliever. What is it? So fragile, God holds their breath in his hand. He's going to judge them. The importance of this life, this life for the believer. Remember Asaph, Psalm 73. When I tried to understand this, it was oppressive to me till I entered the sanctuary of God. I loved when Philip said, if we're not faithful to those little things on the day that we have to say we will not bow, we won't do it if we're not faithful. I'm so thankful he understands that. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Didn't we need to hear this lesson tonight? Thank God we entered the house of God tonight. Then I understand their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground and cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrorists. After being envious of the prosperity of the wicked, Asaph gets a glimpse of their true position. It may look like there's prosperity, but it can be over in a day, and it's all going to be judged. They are standing on slippery ground, and only the goodness of God holds them from falling. Nothing else. And he could take his hand away and let them go whenever he wishes. The one they mock is the only one who now holds them from slipping into a Christless eternity. The horrors of that. That is the precarious position of the unbeliever. So we read in the scripture that that very night, Darius the Mede took over the kingdom and King Belshazzar was killed. What about those impenetrable walls? How how the enemy get in? How do you think the enemy got to him? Anybody know? I know you two do. Y'all keep your mouth shut. Darius blocked the Euphrates River and they crawled under the riverbed. Very good. Very good. History records for us how they did it. You may remember that the Medo-Persian army had been camped outside the walls of Babylon, but the walls of Babylon were said to be wide enough to raise six chariots side by side so there was no breaking in. The Babylonians had also stockpiled the 20 years of food so there was no starving them out either. But they had an Achilles heel. The river Euphrates ran underneath the wall giving the city a constant source of fresh water. So what the Medes and Persians did was they went up river and they dug and they rerouted it an alternative channel for the waters to flow. This reduced the amount of water flowing under the walls enough so that they could simply walk in under the walls of Babylon and take the city. With the king throwing such a grand party inside the Medo-Persian army was able to take the city without much force. It was easy. And thus King Belshazzar of Babylon was killed the very night that God wrote his judgment upon the wall. 
What I thought about when I was um, studying this lesson is that's what the enemy wants to do. He, our water source, our living water, he wants that to be rerouted in our lives. He doesn't want us partaking of that. And we can just be having a party, not living, not following after the Spirit, not being led by the Spirit, just caught up with the mentality of Babylon. And he can just walk in, Avery. It's not hard. But if we'll keep, if we'll be wise to the indoctrination of Babylon, if we'll be wise to partaking of the word and staying full of the spirit and keeping our shield of faith and having our armor on, we can do more than just protect ourselves. We can help others. The writing's on the wall. And they need help. They, we need Daniel's. Let us not be like King Belshazzar, who knew it all but did nothing. Knew it all, did nothing. But let's be like Daniel, three times a day, set purposing to live for God three times a day, resetting his mind, his heart, his will, doing it on purpose. The Babylonian mentality is a deadly one. Few could resist Babylon's charms. We talked about how gorgeous it was, the way it was built, everything that it was. Few had a firm enough hold on reality not to fall for her pretense. Daniel holds his place in scriptures because he was one of the few. Our primary goal from this lesson should be to join Daniel as individuals who can live in an extravagant, excessive culture without being poisoned by it. We need to develop alarms, say alarms, alarms, for Babylon's charms. We need to be so plugged in that we know, no, I don't need to take this. I don't need to do this. The book of Daniel was written for our admonition. Handsome young Daniel encountered Babylon when the cup of her inviting intoxication intoxication was foaming and overflowing. Kegs are open, Philip. Drink all you want. A lot of excuses they could have come up with why they would have done it, right? She didn't just offer them a sip. In time, she offered them the world. Third in the kingdom for one hour. Isn't that what the devil did with Jesus? Nothing is more dangerous than friendly captivity. So dangerous. Daniel resisted her poisonous charms on purpose because he purposed to do it. And so must we. The word of God is our instruction manual. God wants us to recognize the critical priority, say priority, of deliberate training and godliness, we must resist the dangerous indoctrination of worldliness. That mentality is everywhere. It's everywhere. Romans 6, 19, I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness, for you were saved the way you it yielded to uncleanness, and to iniquity, unto iniquity, even so now yield your members, servants to righteousness, 
unto holiness. Daily, I present myself to you, God. What are we thinking today? What are we doing today? Babylon could be compared in the early chapters of Daniel as a woman trying to lure four young men away from their convictions, a seductress. She seductively tried to woo them into unfaithfulness through ego strokes and overindulgence. Let that alarm go off when those are things are coming at you. You and I must wake up to Babylon's continual indoctrination. It's everywhere. Every commercial, it's, it's everywhere when you start looking at it. Live for today. Live for pleasure. Mock God. And we're the vessels. We're the holy vessels. Remember what we said about the mentality of Babylon. Satan at work in man's heart. Let's call it what it is. It's not just having pleasure. And I'm not, I'm not saying to never have pleasure again. I hope you don't misunderstand me. But really, we need to make sure that the things we allow in our lives are of God. We must resist the enemy's intoxication by refusing to drink her brew. Let us drink of the river of life and hide God's word in our hearts, allowing the things of God to be our meditation all the day. That's the blessed life. We are just pilgrims passing through this life. Our treasure should not be of or in Babylon, but laid up in heaven. Our one request should be that we may dwell in the house of the Lord forever to behold His beauty. His beauty. Let us drink in the goodness of the Lord and have nothing to do with the things this world calls good. We are holy vessels created to bring pleasure to Him. To bring pleasure to Him. And in His presence there is what? Fullness of joy. At His right hand are pleasures forevermore. He'll make our name great. He'll give us righteousness, peace, and joy. He'll give us those things. He'll let us go eat a good meal out. But He can't be our God, can it? No. He's got to be our God. Lord, thank you so much for the way your word washes us. Thank you for the way it convicts us. Thank you for your system of us gathering together in your name to indoctrinate us, to put your true doctrine in us, to feed us with the children's bread. And Lord, build us, build your kingdom and your mentality in us that we will know that we can stand and just be so plugged into you that we can hear what you're saying and tell it to others, to encourage them, to love them, and to con and just convince them that you're everything that you are. You, what did he, you say, Lord? You said whatever it takes to persuade them and to give them. Give us wisdom to do that. And let us not be overwhelmed. Your yoke is easy and your burden is light. You pull the weight of the God. But let us make sure that we get it's your yoke on us, not the end. We love you.